Good morning, Harmony. Good morning. Happy New Year. Today we are going to be talking about the power to change. Um, anybody ever done this where their resolution uh, this year is the same as the resolution the year before, and same as the resolution the year before that, and same as the resolution the year before that? Have you ever had one of those things? Well, like it's always on the list, right? Um, mine is to not be so fit. Um, you know, this fitness level that I maintain really just eats up most of my life. And so I've determined that I'm going to be less fit in the future. Uh, I'm hoping to hit 300 pounds this year. I think I can do it. I'm asking for your support and prayers on it. Uh, also, baked goods would be appreciated. Uh, high calorie items are what I'm looking for. Um, but no, like, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be real with you. So for me, I've always struggled with my weight. Uh, struggled with it for years. Um, and what I started to find was is that each year, that goal to lose weight actually felt further away, even if I wasn't necessarily gaining more weight. And the reason for it wasn't really the number of what I had to lose. The reason for it was the distance from that goal. Like the first year I had set my mind to it and didn't achieve it, okay, that was kind of a bummer. That kind of made me upset. Then the second year that I had set that goal and didn't achieve it, well, wow, okay. So two years, a couple different diets, a couple different workout plans, still didn't get there. Third time, another game plan, another workout program, another workout equipment purchased. My wife actually gets on me for this. I am the king of buying workout equipment. <laughs> and she's like, honey, how many of these do you need? And I said, babe, you're looking at it the wrong way. You see me purchasing a DVD set or a workout equipment. I'm not. I'm purchasing hope. Every time I buy one of these things, I am purchasing the hope that this item, this equipment, this video set, this one's the answer. All the rest weren't. The problem's not me. It's been the workout equipment. And now that I have found the right item, now change is going to happen. And so for me, as the years went by, one of the things I started to realize was each year it felt more insurmountable. And not because the number was necessarily bigger, it was because the number of things I had tried, the amount of time that had been on my list, and it was still there. Right, year one, when you set that goal, you go, well, I've never really gone after this. I've never really tried this. I really never poured myself into it. And so I, I'm sure if I do it, I can, I can achieve this. But when you're five years in and you're like, I've done every diet, every workout program, anything you can think of, I've tried it all and I never, I never succeed. Well, now the issue not even is the goal. It's all the failures that surround that goal. It's all the things that you've tried to do to overcome it, and you can't. And I hope for you, yours isn't weight. Maybe it is. But I've found with most people, there is typically one of those things in their lives where they just can't overcome it. They've tried everything they can think of, even stuff that people think is crazy, and they've struggled to overcome it. And so I want to look today a little bit about how do we approach topics like that? How do we approach things like that? Now, I have to give you a huge caveat. as a caveat I gave you last week. This only works for things that God cares about. Right, if you're trying to lose weight so you can be sexy, God could care less about that. Right? If you're trying to learn a new language or anything, any goal that you're doing so that people will look at you and go, you're awesome. If that's your motive, and only you can know the answer to that, God is not going to help you. God has no desire in creating a bigger ego in you. In fact, I would almost contend that for any of those things that you're trying to achieve in your life that will make you a more proud, arrogant individual, God's probably going to put obstacles up for those things. Right? God's probably going to go, you... I don't want you skinny. Because the ego you'd have if you were in shape, oh my goodness. You already think you look like a model. Can you imagine if you did? 
I think that's why he's taken my hair, and I think that's why he's giving me away. I already think I'm pretty good looking, and I had hair, and was skinny. Oh my gosh. It's really a blessing to you guys. I don't even know how you'd focus. Now, you'd never hear anything I'd say. You'd just be like, that guy is gorgeous. I don't know why you're laughing at that. Yeah, she'd be like, that's true. So, so think about that, though, because the motive of what you're trying to achieve in your life is a big deal. As Christians, our goal is not us. Our goal is not our own legacy. Our goal is not a great name for you. Your goal in your life, if you're a servant of God, should be, I want to be the most capable instrument he has. I want to be able to be used by him to build his kingdom, to spread his gospel, and to do whatever work it is he needs to do with me. The prayer of your life should be, I really could care less if anybody ever remembers me. I just hope God uses me to build the kingdom. That should be the prayer. And so if you have things in your life that you have felt are holding you back from doing that, then this will help you. This will help you. Because when you have the right motive, then I absolutely believe the Spirit of God that lives in you, if you are a believer, will help you grow, change, and overcome those obstacles that are in your life. And so let's look at a couple of those things. Let's start with Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is an amazing story of unbelievable change. In Acts chapter 9, we watch somebody who is the enemy of Christianity having a moment that will turn him into one of its greatest defenders and one of its greatest supporters and one of the people that will do most with the gospel to help build the kingdom. And it all comes in a very interesting moment that I want us to pay attention to. And so in Acts chapter 9, we catch up with Saul. Now just to give you a little bit of background, Saul is the birth name of the man that you and I know as Paul. Now Paul, has he done a lot for the kingdom? Absolutely. A lot of that New Testament that you're holding was written by Paul. A lot of the early churches built and planted in the first couple centuries were a result of Paul's work. A lot of what we have about how our churches are structured, how we run, what we look for in the qualities of deacons and elders, right, all comes from what God spoke through Paul. And so Paul is an unbelievably influential individual that God used to build his kingdom, but it started here in this moment. Saul, before his conversion, only has one desire, and that is to wipe the name of Jesus from the face of the earth. He is a Jew through and through, and he sees Christianity as an attack on his faith, on his people, on his way of life, and he will do anything to wipe it out. He's so zealous about this that he seeks permission to leave the main core area of Jerusalem and go find believers out there and bring them back. This is the terminator of Christianity. He has no desire for the name of Jesus to be heard by anyone. And so that's where we catch him in Acts chapter 9. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let me pause real quick there. Does anybody see that the way is capitalized in your Bible? It's beautiful. These people back then were not known as Christians. You and I would not have been called Christians back then. We would have called people of the way. What's that mean? It means that the believers of Jesus Christ lived in such a way that you knew they belonged to Jesus, not because they said so, but because you, with your own eyes, could look at how they lived their lives and go, you're different. Those people are different. Those people live a certain way. How beautiful is that? I can't tell you the number of people I run into who are Christians, and I have no clue from working with them all day long. 
had that happen? I hope it hasn't happened to you. Have you ever worked with somebody or talked with somebody or, or been an acquaintance of somebody for so long and then they reveal to you that they're a believer and you're kind of like, really? Wow. I want to guess. That's devastating. That's devastating. How can you have Jesus Christ in your life? How can you have God, the perfect, almighty being of the universe, in your heart, in your life, shaping the foundations of it, and no one can tell? I was comparing, I'd be like, imagine if the people I've worked with for 15 years just found out I was married. You're married? I would have never known. You have kids? Really? What would you guys think if you found out people who had known me for a decade didn't know I was married or had children? Would you be concerned about the state of my marriage? I, yeah, I would. How do, you, how do you work with people for that long and they don't know anything about you, like, that you're married and have children? Like That should be a big deal. Even in passing, offhand comments should be made that would hint to the fact that you're married and have kids. And so, well, this isn't the point of the sermon. I want you to see the beauty of that. These people were not known as Christians because they listened to K-Love or because they had some membership card to a church or because there was a fish on the back of their car. They were known because the way they lived all day, every day, screamed to people, these are people of the way. These people are different. They live by a certain standard. That's what Paul was wanting to hunt down. Paul could care less about those who believed it in name. He cared about those who lived by the way. That was the threat. It says, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Saul, said, Who are you, Lord? And he, the voice, said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Then the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading them by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was there for three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. I love this. Really focus on Ananias. He's not the focus today, but like, pay attention for just a second on this guy, because Ananias shows you the importance of being a servant. I guarantee if we were going to talk to Ananias about the beginning of his year, if this was one of his resolutions as what's about to happen, he'd say no. Ananias did not see this coming. He has no plans for it. He has no desire for it. But when God calls, what does Ananias say? Here I am, Lord. What I love about that is it tells you that this man was used to being called by God. When God speaks to him, notice the difference between Paul and Ananias. When God speaks to Paul, Paul goes, who are you? Who's speaking? Ananias hears it and goes, here I am, Lord. He knows that voice. He's heard that voice. He obeys that voice. He's familiar with that voice. Where do you fit? If God spoke to you today, would you even know it was Him? If He called your name and gave you directions, would you even know that that was His voice speaking to you? I remember when I've, I felt convicted to be a pastor. One of the things that shook me was I, I hit this moment where I had to choose a path. I had a path that I had dreamt about for years planned for years, studied for years. I uh, had it all mapped out of what I wanted to do, of where I wanted to go, what my plan was. But there was this part of me that just never felt right about it. Like when I tried to envision myself in that life, I, I, I just couldn't see it happening. It felt like a fantasy. And there had been this tugging, this tugging on my life for years. Years. 
Ever so, and every time I'd hear a preacher talk about what your plan was and your talents and your abilities and what God wanted to use, I'd feel this conviction that maybe I should preach. And I hated that. Because preachers were poor, they were nerdy, and they're not cool. No one ever meets a pastor and goes, that's the coolest job. That's so awesome. Right? No little kids have pictures of pastors on their wall. Man, I want to dissect the word like John MacArthur. Yeah. No, no one does that. And so this tugging, it's just like, why do I want that? They're not cool. They don't make money. No one thinks it's cool. But I couldn't get rid of it. And so I went to bed one night, and I said, tonight I'm praying, and I'm going to get an answer. I will get an answer tonight. And so I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. But you know what was different? I shut up. So often when I had prayed in my life, it was just me talking. Me talking, me talking, me talking, me talking. And I'd talk, and then I'd go to sleep. Well, at what point was God supposed to speak to me? I blabbed my mouth for 15 minutes and then fell asleep. Where was I supposed to hear from Him? Then I stayed awake and I expected it and I longed for it and I prayed for an answer and I got one. And what was funny is at that moment I was like, how crazy is that? He gave me an answer. And I'm like, how crazy that the first time you actually listened, He spoke. Maybe, idiot, if you listened more often, you'd hear Him speak a whole lot more. Maybe this isn't so weird. Maybe this is just you always doing it wrong. And so Ananias, we see a huge difference here. Paul, Saul, has been a religious man his whole life. But when God speaks to him, he has no idea who it is. And Ananias, who we don't know much about, but it doesn't seem that he has any of the training that Paul does, when he hears God call, he goes, Here I am, Lord. And look at what God asked him to do. Verse 11, And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may be, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with his disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. So a couple of beautiful things there. One, Ananias, who's talked to the Lord, hears the Lord, and shows his servitude. He shows his servitude because does he want to go talk to Paul? No, he's like, nobody in their right mind who's a Christian wants to go see this guy. Jesus, I'm aware of the individual you would like me to go see. He's got a reputation. He's got a reputation for destroying the lives of people like me. But notice, God doesn't make any promises to him. God just says, Ananias, I know who he is and i got a plan for him. Go. And what does Ananias do? He goes. That's a servant. Now, brothers and sisters, I need you to listen to that because that is not what a modern American Christian does. Modern American Christians go, God, here's my plan. You make it happen. God, I want money. God, I want this job. God, I want to be healthy. God, I want this, 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 and this. I go to church. I tithe. I serve. Use your magic powers and make the list happen. And any of the stuff that we don't like, any of the stuff that infringes on our lifestyle, we go, eh, I won't do that part. He's a God of love. He'll forgive me. He'll forgive me. 
If that's the way you approach God, you got it backwards. You're acting like you're this master and he's the servant. And if that's how your life is structured, do not expect a good relationship with him and do not be surprised that none of the things you desire come true. He is not your genie in a bottle. He's not here to serve your requests. He is the master. You are the servant. Amen. And you serve him because he is unbelievable. Amen. You serve him because he's the kind of man who sees someone like Saul. Someone that defiles God's name. Who curses at God's name. Who kills God's people. And does God strike him down? No, God offers him forgiveness. God offers him love. And then God offers this man who is his enemy the chance to be his disciple and to help build his kingdom. Who does that? Let me make that real for you, parents. Imagine a person whose only desire is to kill your children and in fact has killed some of your children. You find that person, you forgive them, you love them, and you bring them into your own family. How many think you have a heart to do that? I know I don't. I don't want to kill that person. I don't want to murder that individual. That's who Saul is to God. Saul has done those things to God's children, and yet this is how God treats them. He loves him, he forgives him, and he brings him into his own family. And so you go, why would I serve God? Why do I want him to be my master? That's why. He's awesome. He's perfect. He's unbelievably loving. And by the way, he's the one that shaped and built you and knows what you're meant to do. If any of you in your life have that kind of feeling where something just doesn't feel right, they have that feeling like you just something's wrong and you don't know what it is. But you can't find contentment. You can't find peace. Do you know what it is? You're not being used by God to do what you were built to do. He handcrafted you. He shaped you. And He made you for a purpose. And you're not being used for that. And so the reason you feel off is every fiber in you is screaming, this isn't what I was made for. Use me the right way. And the beauty of God is He comes in and goes, I know exactly what you're built for. Let me take you and let me use you. You know why I don't care about the fact that nobody thinks pastors are cool? And the reason that it's okay that I don't make a lot of money? Is because when I'm doing this, I feel like I'm exactly in the place that God made me to be. Amen. There is a peace there's an excitement. There's an energy. There's a purpose I have from this. Because I fit. It's like, oh, I kind of feel like I was made to do this. It feels really good. Each and every one of you have something like that. Each and every one of you have a purpose He made you for. And He wants to get you there. But you've got to let Him lead. Now, I want you to see something about Saul because Saul, Saul's an interesting character, right? Saul is a person who in and of his own power should have known who Jesus was. If you just look at Paul's life, he should have known who this guy was. Flip with me to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul takes a moment because he's, he's kind of arguing with some people who say he's not qualified. And he takes a moment to kind of state who he is. And, and he has a lot of caveats around this, like, look, this is stupid and dumb. You should never be a person who's about your resume. But if we want to play the resume game, Paul's like, I can play the resume game. And so he talks to us about who he has been in the flesh. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. 
Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. That is false believers. People who say they are one thing, but they are not. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, this is the threat of the church today. The threat of the church today is not that there will be nobody who calls themselves Christians. The threat of the church today is you will have thousands who call themselves Christians and do not know Jesus. I'm amazed every Sunday when I go home and turn on the TV and listen to preachers preach the gospel, how little gospel there is, how little truth there is, and how many of them will say things that are directly in opposition to the word. If they call themselves believers, they call themselves pastors, they call themselves instructors. Yet they don't even seem to know the gospel. This is what he's warning against. He says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Do you hear what he says? He goes, look, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who gauge everything by the standards of this world, and there are those who gauge them by the standards of God. I have idiot people calling me out because I don't meet their standards. He goes, if I wanted to play the game, if I wanted to play the game of by the worldly standards who should be respected, Paul goes, I would clean the floor with them. Right? All these false teachers, all these detractors, Paul's like, you want to compare resumes? Let's compare them. I was raised in the most Jewish of homes. I was circumcised at the right time. I was born of the right nation. I was born of an honored tribe of that nation. I was educated by the very best. I've been found to be blameless by my superiors. And then I was educated as a Pharisee. Zeal? You want to talk about pursuing with passion? Pursuing with effort? What you believe? I persecuted the church unlike anybody else. So you want to compare resumes? Let's compare resumes. But then what does he say? All that is worth nothing compared to the beauty of having Jesus. All of that is nothing compared to the beauty of finding Jesus. And this is why that moment on Damascus is so important. Saul's a man who spent his entire life in the Word of God. As a Pharisee, he would have probably memorized all of the Torah, if not most, of the Old Testament. Can you imagine that? Like, how many of you struggle to know the 66 books of the Bible? I'm betting if I offered $100 right now for you, someone to stand up and do the 66 books of the Bible, I'd get no takers. <laughs> this man could sit there and go from Genesis through Leviticus and tell you the whole thing by memory. Can you imagine that? Word for word? Yet you know what happened? He knew all the rituals, he knew all the traditions, he knew all the words, but he didn't know God. He had fallen in love with and worshipped the religion, the system, the morality, and what that could do to him. Right? He had realized that by being good at that, he could rise up to a position of authority and be respected. And I'll bet if you've been in church long enough and been to enough places, you've seen pastors who were not pastors because of the love of God. They were pastors because they realized, what well, in this world, I can have unbelievable authority over people. I mean, the Catholic Church has shown us that lately. Men who realized they could use that role and that authority, not for God, but to do what they wanted to do. That was Paul. Paul had chased after the wrong things and he'd missed what the whole foundation was, which was Jesus. 
And what happens on the road to Damascus is not that Jesus says all that stuff was a waste, but he goes, you've missed the heart. Me. Paul, do you even know who you're persecuting? You're persecuting me. And the reason that Saul flips so fast is Saul has all the trappings. He's just missed the core. And so the moment that he finally comes face to face with God, it all suddenly makes sense. It all suddenly makes sense. He sees the God who's crafted all these things and it changes him to his core. And now the man who has gone around persecuting the church now finds that he is going to be one of its greatest advocates. Why? Because he came face to face with God. There's a quote I love from Albert Einstein, who's a crazy guy. He says, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Do you know why so often you fail at the resolutions or goals that you have in your life? The reason you fail is you keep going to the same source that created them in the first place. Right? If you're trying to be a less angry person by deep, diving deeply into your own soul to find some peace and contentment, it's not there. If it was there, you'd have never been an angry person to begin with. Like if you're looking at your life and you have long-term habitual flaws that have always been present, do you know what that's telling you? That's you. You don't have the resources to not be that. If you did, you wouldn't be that. But I'll tell you, this is everybody. I remember when I got hired here, the one of the first questions I asked people was, do you guys really want change or do you just want different results from the same actions? Because most of the time I lead people, most of the time I'm brought in to change things, whether it's here or my other job, is, is I find that everybody wants different results but they want to do absolutely nothing different. I would love to lose weight, but I'm not going to sleep more, I'm not going to change the way I eat, and I'm not going to work out. Show me the diet that can do that. There is none. It's not going to happen. If you want to be different at something, you have to come at it from a different place. And what Saul learned was, is that the different place for him, the different place for us, is that we stop relying on us and we start relying on God. Amen. We no longer look inward to be different. We look upward. We no longer try to dig deep and be more powerful or loving or self-disciplined in our own strength. We try to be those things in Him. Because He has that power. He has that ability. And even for many Christians, do you know what I find? I find many of you, even who have been on the path for a long time, the arrogance and pride that this world surrounds us with is so much so that we still... Focus on us first, and we use God as the lifeline. We use God as the phone a friend. We use God as the backup plan. Right? I'm struggling. I'm in a tough spot. Let me see if I can figure this out. Let me use my knowledge. Let me use my discipline. Let me use my strength. Let me use my talent. And only after I've exhausted all those things will I fall upon the ground and go, God, help me. I know not what to do. Hey, you know where you should have started? There. Amen. You should have started by going, God, we already know I'm a mess up. I got this obstacle standing in my way, God. You show me how. You show me how. You show me if you even want me to tackle this. Maybe this isn't even the right thing for me to go after. God, what do you want me to change? How do you want me to change? Lead me, Father. Lead me. And when you do that, when you let Him lead, then He provides everything you need to be victorious on that journey. When you're on the path that God has paved, He is not figuring out what to do for you. He has already planned it. He has already set aside everything you will need to be victorious. 
And it's in those moments when we see people no longer rely on their old flesh, rely on the Spirit of God, that we see them become unbelievably different. We see them become something beyond words. We see them change in ways that people would have said were impossible. So the first point. Don't you love that? 12.04 and point number one. (laughs) Right now you're like, oh dear Lord, how long is this sermon going to go? I hope there's not seven points. (laughs) Success doesn't start with you. It doesn't start with you. We are so prideful and arrogant, we always think it starts with us. We even think this book's about us. It's not. It's about Him. Real success, look at that, already point two, see? Real success starts with Christ. Real success comes when we fall on our knees and realize, I don't need to lead anymore, Lord. I've done that. I stink at it. You take the wheel. You drive, you lead, you use me, you guide me, and I will follow. And the beautiful thing is, is so many people, when they hear that, they go, I don't want to do that. I'm not some side character. I want to be the star of the show. Guess what? God will make you the star of the show far better than you could ever do yourself. God's not about making you a spectator. God is about taking you and using you to build the kingdom. You are His hands. You are His feet. You are His voice. And so the beauty of God leading is not that He says, oh, well, you just sit there. I got this. God goes, the way we're going to do this is I'm going to use you. And you will find yourself doing things that you can't even believe you're doing. I regularly have these moments where like, I can't believe God has put me in this moment to do this. I'm so unqualified. But you know what doesn't matter? It doesn't matter what I think because God's the one going, yes, you are. You're the one I built for this moment. So trust me and let's go. Let's go. In James 4.10 it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So let me even appeal to those of you who are sitting here going, Forget you, Pastor. I am about my own greatness. Even if you're an egotistical fool who is about your own greatness, you're an idiot to think you can lift yourself up higher than God can. You want real greatness? You really want your name to be remembered? Then don't count on you. God goes, you want to be elevated? You let me elevate. God goes, those who are humble, those who are lowly, those who fall on their knees and follow me, those are the ones I pick up and I lift. And I lift those people higher than anyone you could ever dream of. Think about it, guys. We know this. You know what's crazy about Satan? His game's really proven to be bad. How many of you can name every president of the United States? At one point or another, that individual was the most powerful being in the world. And you don't even remember their name. You think your name's going to be remembered? You think this world really offers you what you're looking for? Please, go home and go on Instagram, turn on your TV, and you watch the celebrity shows, and you tell me what beauty and money and fame and popularity has brought them. You just see Hollywood full of peaceful, content, happy, well-adjusted people with great families? Is that what you see? It's not what I see. In fact, I'd often go, they're more messed up than anybody. And you know why? Because they have everything the world tells them they need to be successful. They have it, and they're still empty. So they're more confused than anybody because they're like, I shouldn't be winning right now. I have everything the world told me to go get. I have it. And at night, I'm still empty. See, you and I, we're still trying to chase it. We're still like, well, I got to get there. So we're not confused yet because we're like, hey, I know one day when I have that money, then I'll be at peace. I don't have it yet, so I'm good. They're like, I'm here. 
I have all of that. I, I'm lost. I don't know what to do. And when I listen to the world, they're like, well, you're, you already, you've won. That's no help. It is those who are lowly, who are humble, that He will lift up. Look at 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and of self-discipline. Do you know who that describes? Who does that describe? You. If you are a believer, if you have fallen on your knees and you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is a description of you. You are powerful. You are loving. You are self-disciplined. If you're not, then you're either not a believer or God's a liar. He says that's the spirit he put in you. He says that resides in you. He is living in you, providing those things. Let me show you one last story that makes this real. Go to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, two of the disciples of Jesus are put in a situation that should make them crumble. But they don't crumble. And so that they display that exact power of love, or that spirit of power, love, and self-discipline that God promises is there. In the story, we come up with Peter and John, two of the disciples who had just recently healed somebody miraculously. And it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So here's the threat. The threat is, is one, they're coming in doing miraculous things that the Pharisees can't explain. Second, they're proclaiming that the reason they can do these is because of Jesus, who isn't dead but was resurrected. They're giving him that glory. And then really, the biggest reason this matters is because it's making an impact. Right? If they're preaching this and nobody's being converted, nobody's listening, nobody's being healed, nobody's lives are changed, I don't think the Pharisees care. But because they are changing the world around them, 5,000 people, and to be honest, that says 5,000 men, which really means that that normally was their households. You're probably looking at 15 to 20,000 people in this community have been changed by their preaching. The Pharisees are terrified. So they arrest these men, and look what happens. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John, and Alexander, and all were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? You see what they're trying to set up? They call on the most powerful and influential men of the city. They put these two disciples in the center, and they start to inquire on them. Now, you and I miss this because pastors and priests don't carry the same power in our culture as these men did. But back then, the Pharisees weren't just your pastors and your priests. They were pastors and priests and governors and rulers. It was the combination of government power with religious power. These men could wreck your lives. They couldn't kill you by Roman law, but they could put you to jail for the rest of your life and take all your wealth and all your possessions and they could torture you. They could do everything up to the point of killing you. And so they put these two lonely men by themselves in the center and they start attacking them. What do you think they were hoping they would create? I think they were hoping they would create an environment of fear. I think they were hoping that these men would walk into this room and just be stricken with timidity. But watch what happens. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now listen to this, this is my favorite part. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that these were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. See what happens there? It's beautiful. These guys set up in an environment to intimidate these individuals. They're on trial for, have you been proclaiming Jesus? Is there an ounce of fear in these two? Right, notice, they don't even try to talk around it. Right? Like, one, they're not going to lie. But they don't even just try to talk about it. Like, I don't know why we're here. We helped a guy out. You know? People have been asking us their beliefs. We've been sharing them. No big deal. Right? Do they talk around it? No, they're like, you want to know why we're here? We are here to proclaim the name of Jesus, whom you murdered, by the way, whom God, who you say you worshipped, raised from the dead. Then they quote Old Testament scripture. Why? Because the men they're talking to are supposed to be the masters of Old Testament scripture. And so to add salt to the wound, they go, you know who he is? He's the cornerstone that you rejected that God has made the foundation. Do you think you're going to intimidate us? Thank you for calling everybody together so we can call you out. I love that. And here's the beautiful part. We know these two guys. This isn't about Peter and John being bold, talented, courageous men. In fact, we can rewind just a few months ago and see the complete opposite. Read the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, most of the time, the disciples, especially Peter, are dense, don't understand what Jesus is talking about, and aren't that bold. Even Peter, who's the boldest of them all, in the moment that they come to arrest Jesus, he fights back. But as soon as they arrest Jesus and he realizes it's over, they're gone. The disciples run. They hide. Peter, who stays on the fringes, three times that night denies that he even knows Jesus because he's afraid of what would happen to him. So why is he different now? He's different now because he's not acting in the power of Peter. He's different now because between those moments, after Christ rose, he put his spirit in these two men. And now these two men are bold and courageous and powerful because they're not leaning on themselves. They are leaning on the Holy Spirit that is in them. They have changed because it isn't about Peter. It's not about John. It's not about their talent. It's about the spirit that God has put in them. And them relying on that spirit now stand as men who are the focus and go do your worst. Do your worst. You think I'm scared of you? You think I'm going to lie to you? You think I'm going to cower before you? I am here to proclaim the name of Christ and I will tell that to anyone. And the beauty of it, if you keep on reading, is the Pharisees don't know what to do. The Pharisees thought they'd set this whole thing up and would intimidate these guys, have them tuck their tail and run in cowardice, go, I guess we'll let you go. Because they realized they, they could technically hurt them, but there's 15,000 people who believe what they believe. What will that do to the Pharisees' reputation? What will that do to their popularity with the people? Well, they don't want to do that. They weren't really going to play that card. So those who'd set this whole thing up actually end up being the ones who walk away as cowards. And so I say all that to encourage you that if you want to change, 
you want to be different, then stop relying on you. You make sure what you want to change is motivated by the character of God. You make sure that what you want to change in you has to do with the glory of Him, not yourself. Amen. And then you stop trusting on you. You can't do it. Amen. Like, I don't want to bum you out, but you're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not disciplined enough, you're not talented enough. And that's perfectly okay. Because you are enough of what God needs you to be. God has built you for a purpose and a reason and He gave you everything you need to fill that role. And so if you let Him come in, He'll fill all the gaps. Amen. If you let Him come in, He will take you. And where in many places you may be the wrong fit, He will take you to this one place and He will put you there and you go, it's like I was built for this. Amen. And you were. And in that moment, you will find you are doing things and achieving things and accomplishing things and are part of things that are beyond your wildest dreams. That's why I love following God. His dreams for me have always been far better than my dreams for myself. He always shows me that I don't dream big enough. And so I love letting Him lead. Because He has led me to the greatest joy, the greatest love, the greatest purpose, the greatest things of my life. Because that's what He does. And He will do that for you. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before You, Lord, and I pray that You will speak to each person in this room. I pray, Lord, that You will cut through the noise and that You will knock away their vision for the things of this world. And like You did for Paul, Lord, You'll clear all the distractions and you'll just call out to them so that they see you with their own eyes. Father, I pray the people in this room who are your disciples that they will know that that power, that love, and that self-discipline, it already is there, Lord. You've already put it inside them. I pray, Lord, that they won't use it as their backup plan, but that they will go to it each and every morning. That they will live in those things. And that, Father, you will use this people for a mighty work. Father, we love you. We trust you. We follow you. And as Ananias said when you called him, here we are, Lord. Here we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come to the front, Brother James to be in the back. If there's anything you need to pray about while we're singing, feel free to come forward and we will be glad to pray with you. As always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during the middle of service, please seek us out afterwards. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you as you go on your journey with the Lord. Maria. Let's all stand.
see I'm back as we're wrapping up at 1230. Um, I will try to do better next week. My apologies. Um, I, I wish you all a happy new year. I really want you guys to be focused on what it is God wants to do with you this year. It is birthdays and anniversaries so we have cake and some drinks out here in the fellowship hall if you want to join us for that. Um, otherwise I, I wish you the very very best. I love worshiping with you. I remind you that you are here with a mission. And that is a mission to go make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. So get to it. I love you all. Have a great week. Amen. <laughs> it's almost like you knew what I was preaching.